into the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Friday, May 17th, 2013, and this is podcast number 315. And my name is Ben Stone. So our announcements today are going to, I'm going to keep them really quick. I want to thank the donors again. Uh, We're still seeing donations coming in for Porkfest. We really appreciate that. And I specifically wanted to thank whoever it was that uh, anonymously donated bitcoins on Wednesday uh, of this la- of this week at around twelve o two Eastern time with uh, with bitcoins. The way we have that set up with our donation uh, bitcoin number right there on the webpage at badquaker.com. Uh, we don't have any way of knowing who donates uh, uh, through that. It's entirely anonymous. So whoever that person was, I, I really appreciate. You know, all of us here, we really appreciate it. And um, I also wanted to mention again that the uh, if you show up at uh, Pork Fest, uh, come out to my camp with a Bitcoins Not Bombs T-shirt on, then uh, I'll buy you lunch, and you can get to that over at bitcoinnotbombs.com slash store. Bitcoin, not bombs, not uh, not bitcoins. It's in the singular sense. Okay, libertarian desperation. That's uh, what I'm talking about today. From Wikipedia, desperation is the emotional state of despair in which a person feels a situation to be hopeless and without satisfactory uh, options, satisfactory options. Decisions made in desperation may be more rash, impulsive, and inappropriate than those made in a rational frame of mind. And now for something completely different. In the Department of Economy, an act, a habit, an institution, a law, gives birth not only to an effect, but to a series of effects. Of these effects, the first only is immediate. It manifests itself simultaneously with its cause. It is seen. The others unfold in succession. They are not seen. It is well for us if they are foreseen. Between a good and a bad economist, this constitutes the whole difference. The one takes account for the visible effect. The other takes account both of the effects which are seen and also those which it is necessary to foresee. Now, this difference is enormous, for it almost always happens that when the immediate consequence is favorable, the ultimate consequence is fatal, and the converse. Hence, it follows that the bad economist pursues a small present good, which will be followed by a great evil to come, while the true economist pursues a great good to come at the risk of a small present evil. 
Frederic Bastiat, eighteen fifty, in that which is seen and that which is not seen. From about two thousand six until about two thousand twelve, for six years, Ron Paul and a small group of supporters worked hard to build a movement. Ron Paul spoke truth in a time of lies. For honest people around the world, the truth spoken by Ron Paul rang clear in their minds and touched their hearts. A wave of support began to build. One by one, lives began to change as the truth began to spawn hope for the future. But there was a flaw. This is that which was seen. And now for something completely different. Bells will be ringing, sad, sad news. Oh, what a Christmas to have the blues. The bell, as we know it today, was invented about 4,000 years ago in Asia. Europeans were able to catch up with the art of bell making about 1,500 years ago. Uh, artisans would travel around Europe and relying on their reputation, townsfolk would pool their money and resources and hire the bell makers. Often, uh, a, a church, a town church, uh, would be temporarily transformed into a foundry, and a church bell would be cast right there inside the church building. Church building offered several advantages. Uh, oftentimes, they were made out of stone, and so you could control the temperature a little bit better, which is critical in, uh, in the casting process of, of making something like a bell. Um, by about 1,200 years ago, bells became part of the of the Christian religion, and the best bell makers were almost exclusively Christian holy men of the day. Uh, now, that's not bad. Christians were only about 2,800 years behind the Hindu and about 1,300 years behind the Buddhists in their adoption of the bell. Um, and bells are pretty cool, really, if you think about it. A proper bell back in those days was cast from high copper bronze alloy. Then it had to be carefully tooled to fine-tune its pitch. Real craftsmen were involved in this process. But no matter the reputation or the skill of the bell maker, the real test was when the bell was mounted and it was struck for its, uh, for its you know, real ringing of the bell, not just test tapping on it. When it, was, when it was mounted properly and it was really rang, that was the test of the bell and of the bell maker. Now, for a bell to be considered true, a true bell, it had to ring in the correct pitch, and it had to do that without cracking. When, when the bell is struck, a series of oscillations, uh, very much like waves flowing through the, right through the solid bronze, they move back and forth through the bell. And the bell actually distorts with each of these waves. If you look at it in slow motion in high-speed cameras, you can actually see a bell sort of, you know, it has the round shape of the, of the open part of the bell. And you'll actually see that distort and go into sort of oblong uh, oscillations back and forth as the waves of sound literally uh, bend the uh, temporarily bend the bell uh, the the metal in the bell and that's what creates these sounds and so if the bell can endure these sound waves without cracking or breaking then the bell is considered true in the olden days lots of bells uh, would fail to be true they would crack it was very common they would crack or or break entirely. 
Oftentimes, uh, a bell couldn't be tested um, until it was all the way in place in the bell tower. Now, you could mess around with it a little bit, but like I said a minute ago, the true test wasn't until it was in place, and then you could find out. Now, when a bell cracked, um, rather than you know, rather than the bell maker immediately blaming himself, uh, he would he would try to dump that blame on something else or somebody else. Maybe he would blame the town. Maybe he would blame the church. Maybe he would blame the tower. Maybe he would you know it's a devil. Uh, the devil cracked the bell. Uh, maybe the town has a devil, or the town or the tower is possessed. It was always something. He he didn't want to take the blame himself. And and I'll go into that again in a second, but um, but the but the point I want to make here is that oftentimes it was very difficult or or unsafe removing the cracked bell, so it wasn't always an option to remove the cracked bell. So uh, a quiet tower, a, a bell tower with a cracked bell, would often become the home of bats. You'd have bats in your belfry, and that would indicate demon possession. The fact that you had bats in your belfry indicated that there was demon uh, problems there because you couldn't ring your bell and drive the bats out, see? Now, you know, you have a situation there where there's clearly, I mean, look at all the evidence. There's the bats. There's the broken bell. There must be devil activity. There must be demon activity. It's time for an inquisition. Well, now, who would uh, who would want that? Who would who would bring that on themselves? Well, as far as the bellmaker is concerned, this is an act of desperation because, uh, you know, what what are, what are the options? You want to tell a whole town full of people that they've worked hard cutting wood and bringing in all their possessions and and doing everything they could to try to to get this bell made, and now it's cracked. Is the bellmaker just going to go, hey, my bad, let's start over, we'll take another year or two and work this thing and try to, you know, so so there's going to be a lot of anger, there's going to be a lot of uh, confusion. Um, so why would you leap to the conclusion that the devil caused it? Uh, why not just recast the bell? Well, again... You know, it's an act of desperation on the part of the bellmaker. He doesn't want to take the blame for this. And all the, you know, all the village people are there. Something must be done. We got to do something now. We've waited all this time. We've invested all this hard work. We've, we've invested everything we had to try to get this bell. And now it's cracked. Why is that? I want an answer. I want an answer right now. That's, that's the tendency of people. Maybe, you know, maybe, uh, if they had to mine, uh, for the natural, for the for the material for the bell, or if they had to give up uh, personal possessions, you know, maybe grandma's candlesticks, or or some cannon that was brought back from the Crusades and you know from the Holy Land, or or whatever, uh, great sacrifice was made to go into to doing this and to doing it right, and uh, and something's wrong, and and it all focuses on the bellmaker, and so the bellmaker. Um, in an act of def desperation, would blame it on the devil, you see? Not because he wanted to unleash the, the kind of, uh, you know, firestorm of hate that an inquisition could bring or that a, uh, you know, that uh, some kind of um, exercising of demons, uh, not that the bellmaker wanted that, it was just what were, what, you know, what were his options out of desperation, he would uh, bring this topic up. And now you've got a problem. Now we've got to find out who the witch is, who needs to be burned, who's the, who's the demon-possessed person who did this, who brought this on our town, who has spoiled our, our bell, 
You see, the level of desperation uh, causes people to do things and to think things that they wouldn't normally do or even think. Well, in 2012, there was a moment when the Ron Paul bell cracked. Uh, You might have seen this first with Rand Paul. You might have seen the desperation first with him. Do you remember when in 2012, when Ron Paul was still running and still in the running. I mean, it was still a viable option that Ron Paul could uh, go into the Republican convention and actually have an impact. And right in the middle of that, Rand Paul, in an act of desperation, endorsed Mitt Romney. And this has been followed by a series of desperate acts and desperate statements on the part of Rand Paul. And if you really think about it, they're all aimed at securing his position in the Republican bar, in the Republican Party. The latest thing that he's done is uh, he basically came out and uh, came out in favor of the war on drugs, and he he did so, you know, well, without really getting into it too much. What you're seeing from him is an act of desperation. He was literally at the cutting edge of a movement in 2008, 2009, 2010. But by 2012, he realized that there was no possible way his dad was going to get elected as president. And he realized that there was no possible way that all the Ron Paul backers were going to have the ability to change the Republican Party the way he wanted it changed. And so as an act of desperation, Rand Paul changed himself. And Rand Paul began to do things that he thought were logical. He thought 100% of what he was doing was uh, was going in the right direction. And you can even see this from certain Ron Paul supporters who are, I'm sorry, certain Rand Paul supporters who are still getting behind Rand Paul and saying, well, you got to understand there's a bigger goal here. You see, these are acts of desperation, people who think they have no other choice. And so... Um, So Rand Paul has done these things. Now, different people react in different ways to desperation. And it would be easy to judge Rand Paul, maybe call him some names, or say that his true nature has finally come out. But really, it's important to understand that when we watch Rand Paul go through these gyrations and we watch him flip-flop in his positions and we watch him abandon all the principles that he stood for and that his father stood for, when we see these things, we're, we're actually watching the desperate acts of a man. This is that which was not seen, the flaw in the casting. It, it's the underlying faith in the religion of the state. You see, Rand Paul still believes today that ultimately you can use the government to fix the government. And if you really think about it, that was the flaw of the Ron Paul movement. That was the crack in the bell. That was the thing that created the crack in the bell. That was the flaw in the casting right from the beginning. This idea that this great man, that this great Ron Paul could rise up and take the presidency of the United States and do some great thing with it and make government fix government. This was, this was the flaw. This was the error from the very beginning before the metal was poured. This was the flaw. Desperation. There's a myth a real popular myth, actually, that uh, in the beginning of World War II, when, when Germany first invaded Poland, there's a story that uh, the Polish cavalry uh, 
um, did a saber attack, a, a charge, a saber charge on German panzer tanks. And there's, you know, the edge of truth to this. There actually was a, a division of uh, um, a Polish cavalry that were chopped up pretty bad by some Germans and um, and some reporters that showed up after the battle saw the dead horses and saw uh, Polish cavalry, uh, dead Polish cavalry with, uh, you know, with their uh, sabers still in their hands and so forth. And so there was this misunderstanding of the evidence that was presented to them. And um, the German government actually saw that as an opportunity for uh, for publicity, not publicity, propaganda. And uh, and so they exploited it, claiming you know that that uh, that this was the case. And you have to understand that the Polish cavalry, for like a thousand years, was a legendary force in Europe, going back to the days of knights. A Polish cavalry charge was a devastating thing in a battle. And so for the Germans to essentially say, you know, well their their reign is over, and a modern mechanized military is here. Um, well, that was part of the propaganda machine um, that utilized uh, flawed evidence to to establish this myth that the Polish cavalry actually did charge uh, Panzer tanks with you know with sabers drawn. Now, the reason why this myth is so easily believed, the reason why the story of the of the Polish cavalry attacking Panzers with with sabers, the reason this myth is so easily believed by people. And I believed it for years until I found out the, the true story of it. But the reason why it's believed is because it's so believable. Because we, we look at the situation and here is this antiquated military and they're being charged, uh, you know, uh, uh, walls of panzer tanks are coming at them. And they know that if, they're, if the Germans, uh, you know, can get past them, then there's nothing standing in the way of the German army. And so in sheer desperation... Uh, they, they, there's nothing else they can do. They're without choices. They, ha they have to stand up. They have to fight. They can't just abandon their country to the Germans. And so in, des in sheer desperation, they do the only thing they think they can do, and they charge the, uh, the panzers. See, we, we see this in our mind, and we say, yeah, I could see how that could happen, because people react uh, to desperation by making foolish choices. This is what human beings do. And since that's an aspect of human nature, then the myth of this cavalry charge is very believable. And so, you know, for what, 60, 70 years? Uh, yeah, it's been believed that that was true by a lot of people. It was believed in the day because it seemed perfectly logical because that's what desperate people do. When I get back from this break, I'm going to talk about some more uh, desperate acts that people have committed and, uh, and we'll see if we can examine this situation a little bit further. Stick with me. I'll be right back. According to a recent survey of Bitcoin users, the most common use of Bitcoins was as donations. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Murphy with FreeAid, the world's first Bitcoin-based charity. Join me as I moderate a panel discussion about Bitcoin and nonprofit organizations at the Bitcoin 2013 conference. On the panel will be Angela Keaton from Antiwar.com, Carla Garrick from the Free State Project, and Teresa Warmke, my partner at FreeAid. Bitcoin Not Bombs is launching us into financial freedom this May at the Bitcoin 2013 conference. To learn more, visit BitcoinNotBombs.com. 
How would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon. It won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. Desperation. Desperation. It makes people do strange things. It makes people set aside logic and clear thinking. It, it causes rational thought to be driven from your mind and it and it causes you to do things that you just normally wouldn't do if you could stop and really think about it. September 17th, 1862, generally called the Battle of Antietam or you may prefer the Battle of Sharpsburg. This was the bloodiest day in American history. Nearly 7,000 Americans died as a result of that day. During the fighting of that battle, the Union General Joseph Hooker had the opportunity to serve Robert E. Lee a devastating blow and possibly end the battle. But at that key moment, Hooker was severely wounded and uh, quickly fell unconscious from his blood loss. Hooker's command was taken over by a guy named Edwin Sumner. Uh, Sumner was not prepared to see Hooker uh, that severely injured, unconscious, and, and Sumner was not prepared to take charge of a battle in, under circumstances like this. He was absolutely desperate. And in an act of pure desperation, Sumner ordered his men into formation, and they marched in formation directly in front of the Confederate lines. Other helpless Union soldiers watched at a distance as Sumner's men were cut down by Confederate fire. Sumner was so horrified by the slaughter that he witnessed that he hesitated to make another move. He, he froze. The advantage of the battle shifted, and Lee gained the upper hand. Sum, Sumner's two-part uh, two mistake, his first uh, marching his men directly in front of the Confederate lines like that, and then his second hesitation, his freezing in the middle of battle. This two-part mistake cost countless lives as the battle raged on unnecessarily. Desperation. The other day, I received another invitation to the open carry event in, uh, in Washington, D.C. that's scheduled for the 4th of July in this year. I was glancing through the comments, and, uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of troll activity there, as you can expect with this kind of a subject. There's a lot of uh, people <laughs> counter-trolling, you might say. But what I was really seeing when I pushed through all of that noise and I started seeing people uh, explaining why that they would be involved in this march on Washington, D.C. on July 4th. And what I saw was desperation. 
I, you know, there was all kinds of other things. There were uh, a wide variety of statements. There were complaints. There were assertions. There were accusations. There was a lot of internet bravado. But the one thing in common among all the people who were saying they were going to go was desperation. What else can we do? We've done everything else. We've tried everything else. Look at where we are. Look at what the government is doing. Look at how close they are to taking guns away from people. It's, it's desperation. You, there's nothing, what, what's anybody else offering? This is the kind of statements that come through. Panic, fear, desperation. It's the echo of the cracked bell reverberating through a desperate people. We don't need to ask what's wrong with the July 4th gun march. Um, If we recognize what was wrong with the Ron Paul Liberty Movement, then we'll know what's wrong today with this idea of marching on Washington, D.C. with guns. If you understand, we just reiterate that. If you really understand what happened with the Ron Paul Movement and what happened in 2012, and if you really understand why Uh, Rand Paul is acting the way he's acting right now. And if you really understand that it took six years to set up this massive mistake that happened in 2012, if you begin to understand that, then you can begin to understand what's wrong with marching on Washington, D.C. on July 4th. You have to go back to the casting. You have to set aside your desperation, set aside your irrational fear, set aside all the hype and all the emotion, all the fury, and apply reason and logic. Why is this happening? Why are people ready to go to Washington, D.C. and have an armed mob? Oh, I know, they're going to walk in straight lines. Yeah. Yeah. Sumner's guys did that too. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that anybody's going to get cut down the way Sumner's men got cut down. That's not my point. My point is that in an act of desperation, people do desperate things, and they don't think about it. They don't think about the purpose. They don't think about uh, whether or not their actions will serve that purpose. They, they just get frustrated, and they feel like something has to be done. We have to do something. We've put all this effort, all this time, all this money, all of our hopes, all of our dreams. And we can't just sit back and do nothing. We can't just sit on our couches and watch TV. We can't just sit in our lawn chair and watch the grass grow. We have to do something. We have to do it now. Desperation forces us to act. But the flaw was built into the casting. And that flaw was faith in the state. Because really, it it all focuses on this foolish myth that you can use government to fix the government. It doesn't matter what Ron Paul believed. It doesn't matter what Ron Paul said. The underlying theme that came through loud and clear from the Ron Paul liberty movement and, and, and what the crowds believed was that a great man could walk in, take control of the state, and make the, and make the government fix the government. This was the underlying belief. And even people who realistically understood that Ron Paul couldn't be elected as president 
even most of those who were Ron Paul supporters still believed that there would be enough of a voice that it would shift politics and it would shift the Republican Party and it would force the Republican Party to, to take these people seriously, these Ron Paul people seriously. That was in the very, in the most realistic ideas of the Ron Paul supporters, there was still this underlying faith in government to fix government. That was the flaw that was built into the casting. And that flaw is faith in the religion of the state. The bells cracked and the movement has become a desperate leaderless mob following the most desperate voices. Voices expressing frustration and anger, but providing no direction other than more faith in the state. Begging the state, begging government to fix government, begging government to allow you to do this or to do that, begging government to let, please, let us come and do this. Please, police chief, please work with us, let us do this. Begging the government to fix the government expecting the government to fix the government. But you fail to see the original flaw. So you embrace the superstition. We're in panic mode. Something has to be done. We've put all this time, all this effort, all the blood, sweat, and tears that we've put into this. And something has to be done, and it has to be done now. We can't wait. We have to fix this now. We've done everything. We've tried everything. We have to grab our torches. We have to burn the witches. Clearly, clearly, something has to be done now. But what is really the goal? What is the goal in going to Washington and begging government to fix government? Is it not? Is that not it? Is there something else? Is it to restore the Second Amendment? Well, that's embracing the faith of the state. That's, that's believing the little piece of paper can control government, that a little piece of paper can control all those people who have all those reasons to ignore the Second Amendment. It's faith in a history that never happened. It's faith that for a long time, the Constitution controlled and kept government in check. No, it didn't. It never did. It never did. That's all a lie. The Constitution never held the government in check, not from the first president and not until the one that we've got now. Every single president broke the Constitution in one way or another because, the con because it's impossible for a little piece of paper to control a government. It just can't happen. Not only has it not happened, it can't happen. But believing that it can happen is faith in the religion of the state. So what is it? So Okay, so you're not going to restore the Second Amendment. So what are you doing? Oh, it's a show of strength. I've heard that over and over. It's a show of strength. Well, who is this show for? Who are you showing your strength to? Obama? To Congress? To government itself? To the concept of government? To the people in government? All of these are embracing the faith of the state. All of these assume the deity of the state. All of these are working within the the working within the um, the constraints 
of what the Constitution allows. The Constitution allows you to gather together and express your um, your frustration with government. The Constitution allows that. It's right there written into it. And so you expect government to allow you to do this. All of that is faith. All of that is faith in government. All of that is accepting the deity of the, of the state. Oh, we're going to put the government on notice. I heard that over and over. We're going to put the government on notice. That's just more the same. Why are you uh, Why are you wanting the government to do your bidding for you? Why are you engaging in the government? Why are you attempting to work within the constraints of the Constitution, whether that be through a peaceful march or whether that be through some other method that relies upon people in government deciding to do what you want them to do. All of this, everything that, every single way that you can look at this, you're asking government to fix government. It's going back to that original flaw in the Ron Paul movement. It's going back to embracing the superstition. And now you're in panic mode. Now you're in desperation and you've grabbed your torches. Because this works so well for the Occupy movement. Remember those posters, uh, the the uh, internet meme with the kids screaming and the caption over it that says, once more government, and the cops spraying him in the face with a pepper spray and the caption saying, more government. So we haven't learned the lesson from the Occupy movement. We're going to go down and demand that we have our way. We're going to demand that government do something. We're going to demand that those people in Washington, D.C. do something. You know, if it wasn't, uh, if, if, you, if you say to yourself, well, no, no, we're not there uh, marching in Washington, D.C. to try to get the government to do anything, well, then why are you at the seat of government? Why aren't you having this same march in, uh, I don't know, Walla Walla? Uh, because if you don't already believe that government is legitimate and Washington, D.C. is the seat of government and to control Washington, D.C. controls government. And if you don't believe that you can influence government by going to Washington, D.C. and voicing yourself to the Capitol like that, if that's not what you're doing, then why aren't you doing it in the middle of the Arizona desert? Why aren't you doing it uh, uh, somewhere in, in uh, Alberta, Canada? Why are you going to Washington, D.C. if you don't believe that, in fact, the government can be used to fix the government? You see, it all goes back to that same flaw, the very same flaw. And when the bell was rung and the flaw was exposed in 2012, the desperation began that set up this situation for July 4th. Desperation is the emotional state of despair in which a person feels a situation to be hopeless and without satisfactory options. Decisions made in desperation may be more rash, impulsive, and inappropriate than those made in a rational frame of mind. The July 4th gun march is a desperate act of a desperate, misguided people. They have no hope, and they think they have no options, because they were led to believe that Ron Paul was this great man, that Ron Paul would save them, that Ron Paul would take the ring of power 
and do good with it. They believed this. Their faith was in this great man. They placed all their faith in the belief that government could be fixed by government. And now they're a mob with torches and nothing more. The answer to this lies not in confronting government. The answer lies in defeating the religion of statism. You see, as I've been saying, government's not your enemy. Faith in the state is your enemy. The religion of statism is your enemy. And the method to fight a religion is not through confrontation. The method to fight a religion is in slowly, carefully, lovingly pointing out the truth. And the truth is that the state is evil. The truth is that any time human beings join together and decide to create law and then put that law upon other people, that's evil. Whenever a group of people decide for themselves that they can make law and they can inflict that law upon others, that's evil. So when we begin to recognize that the religion of the state is the religion of evil, then the facade of government begins to fall away. The idea that government can fix government begins to fall away. The idea that two wrongs can make a right The idea that if you do enough bad, that somehow good will come from it. All these things begin to fade away and fall away. As we begin to understand really what the religion of statism is. And how deeply it's embedded in the minds of people. Folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you.